What would you do if uh, one day, as you went about your regular business, you felt a lump somewhere in your body? You'd probably go to the doctor. And uh, you went to the doctor, and the doctor would feel the lump and say, hmm, you have a lump in your body. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Let's have it checked out. Uh, that happened to me a few years back. And so I had it checked out first. I had uh, an ultrasound performed. And the ultrasound confirmed I had a lump in my body. <laughs> and then I had an MRI performed. The MRI perform confirmed I had a lump in my body. And uh, at that point, the doctor could say with some certainty that I had a tumor. Now, they didn't know what kind of a tumor it was. Um, for those of you who are not familiar or familiar with tumors, a tumor is basically, typically, a part of your body. So your body is an amazing thing. Uh, David said, uh, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And he doesn't know 1% of what the medical world knows today about the human body. And uh, we must still say that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We start as a single cell, right? The egg and a sperm, and then it multiplies. And somehow, all these cells know how to form organs. Each uh, cell in your body has exactly the same DNA, same information, yet somehow it knows, ah, I'm going to be a lung cell. I'm going to be a heart cell. And so the embryo develops until it stands before you today as a, a fully formed uh, human being. And uh, every cell in my body has a function and somehow knows its place. But usually as a result of misinformation, so your cells uh, duplicate themselves every day, uh, and sometimes you may get a mis translation or copying of your DNA, and you may have a cell with a different piece of information in it, and that cell decides to go wild and says, I'm going to make more cells just like me. Do I have a part of the body? No, I don't. I'm just me, and I'm going to make more of me. And it goes wild. And that's what a tumor is. Basically, a cell in your body starts duplicating and duplicating, but it lost connection with your body. It's not obeying your brain, it's not obeying its design function in the body, and it's now beginning to press upon the surrounding tissue. If that particular uh, growth or tumor has the ability of moving from one tissue to another, it is called a cancer, because it will spread in your body and will kill you. Right? So the first question that the doctor had to determine, is this a cancer? Is this a tumor that has the ability of moving from one tissue to another tissue? And uh, for that, they had to do a biopsy. And I'm thankful that the biopsy said, no, this was a benign tumor. Uh, I still didn't like it. I didn't want it in there. I had it removed. But uh, I'm thankful that it was benign. It wasn't a type of tumor that can spread into different types of tissues. Um, but it is very possible. It could have very well been a cancer. In either way, especially if it's a cancer, there's one typical solution people use, and that is they operate 
they take it out, they remove it. Now it is possible to try to use radiation or chemotherapy to kill it, but most commonly uh, it's removed in an operation. Well, the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians is dealing with another kind of tumor. And that tumor is that false teachers have come into the church at Corinth and they have been teaching. They've claimed to have an authority. They claim that they are the true apostles of Christ, whereas Paul is somehow less than an apostle of Christ. And people should listen to them. People should follow them. Paul warned the elders in Ephesus about this happening. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. He said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. This was the responsibility of the elders, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. That's what happened in Corinth. Men rose up speaking perverse things, misinformation. They are not teaching the truth of God to draw away disciples after themselves. They wanted people to follow them. Really, instead of following Paul, instead of following God. And as a result, you now have the formation of a tumor in the church at Corinth. And Paul has to perform an operation. He needs to remove this tumor from the church. Second Corinthians could be considered uh, the pre-op. Right? We don't actually see the operation happening in First, Second Corinthians. He is preparing the church for what is going to happen. He is coming to the church, and he will take action. He will separate the false teachers out. He will put them out of the church, but he wants to minimize the damage to the church at Corinth. So this is the pre-op. operation. Let's go ahead and read the first third of the chapter. We'll look at Second Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll read it roughly in thirds. First, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent am bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. What is Paul's goal here? He says, I am pleading with you. What does it mean to plead often? 
<laughs> you'll go do something like this. I am pleading with you. All right? Paul is pleading with them. What is it that he is pleading for? You have to get it from the context. He is pleading those who have been uh, affected by the false teaching. And this is not the entire church, but there's a significant group of believers who are siding with the false teachers saying, yeah, we're following them. We think they're teaching the truth. We think that uh, they're the ones we should follow. And Paul is pleading with them and saying, please turn away from these people. These people are not teaching you the truth. Right? And he will do, in fact, the letter is mostly a defense of Paul. He's mostly defending himself against the attack of these false teachers. Now he's beginning to move into really the warning of what he is about to do when he gets to Corinth. Right? But he wants the uh, people to separate themselves. It's like Moses going into the Hebrew camp, telling the Israelites, separate yourself from these people who rebelled against the law because God, the Lord, because God is about to split the ground open, right? And everyone who's standing next to them is going to fall down into the pit. So stay away. Everybody move away from them. And praise the Lord, the nation of Israel largely obeyed him. They move away from the tents of the rebels. And so when God's judgment fall, it only destroys those who have rebelled against the Lord. That's what Paul is trying to do here, separate the believers from the false teachers before judgment comes upon them. Now, Paul will, uh, in this chapter, deal with uh, four, at least I, I distinct, distinguish four different type of accusations that are being made against him by the false teacher and with a comeback of why the Corinthians should respond to this appeal and return to him and forsake the false teachers. The first accusation, if you would, against Paul, he refers to it. Uh, he says, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent and bold toward you. Being lowly, he's being accused of being lowly, a, uh, a, an inferior person, a lowly person, one who doesn't deserve uh, people's esteem. It may have been because when Paul came to Corinth, we'll see it in the next chapter, he uh, worked as a tent maker. Right? He, he uh, uh, went together. He found Aquila and Priscilla. They were tent makers, and Paul joins them. He works with his hands as a common laborer, a lowly laborer, perhaps. And Corinth is full of uh, people who have a much higher state. We see those people in the church that are responsible for the treasury of the whole city. Right? People that are very wealthy, people who are up in society. And Paul was a lowly person. That's an accusation leveled against Paul. Uh, Paul responds to that accusation uh, saying that he wants, he doesn't want to be bold. I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence with which I tend to be bold uh, towards some. I think what he's saying there, um, he doesn't want to act with, with uh, great boldness when he is at Corinth. Uh, he wants to be gentle. He says, uh, I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Yes, I want to be gentle, just like my Savior is gentle. Uh, let me ask you uh, this question. Actually, let me go ahead and quote this because I had it in my notes. I keep telling our, our faithful ministers uh, behind the curtain that uh, 
I'll, I'll try to follow my notes. I'll just uh, mention here about the Lord Jesus. Uh, the Lord Jesus described himself as a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. The Lord Jesus is very gentle with his handling of us, and so we want, it's good that Paul is gentle as well. Uh, how would you like this guy to be operating on you? No, right? Not the kind of guy. He could have told me, Noad, I see you have a tumor in your hand, benign or not benign. I think we should get to work and start at the shoulder, right? I mean, you don't want that kind of person operating on you. You want someone who's gentle, right? Who's going to, to try to minimize the damage they cause to you when they operate. So it's actually a good thing that Paul is gentle and meek, right? That is the kind of person uh, you want to follow. Right? Uh, ministers of Christ shouldn't be known for uh, you know, the, the great boldness in the sense of, of the demands they make upon people, wanting to look down at people, you know, the status in the world. Uh, Jesus said that uh, he who is first among you will be last. Right? And uh, he who rules over you will be servant of all. Right? Those are the kinds of people Jesus wants as leaders in his church, not not those who are haughty, but those who are lowly. The second accusation they seem to be throwing at Paul, and that is in verse uh, 2. He says, But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold towards some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. Uh, they were suggesting that uh, Paul's motivation were... Uh, were fleshly, meaning uh, based on his selfishness. They were saying, uh, Paul just wants your money, right? And that's really why he wants you guys to follow you, right? He, uh, he wants to be associated with, uh, with the high and mighty, and that's why Paul you know, wants to have a place of honor uh, in this church. They were accusing Paul of having selfish motives as, uh, in his ministry, as opposed to what he really was doing, which was serving God. Paul's response to this seems to be uh, his, his warfare. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according uh, to the flesh. Our brother Eddie pointed us to uh, the fact that Jesus' rule is a spiritual one. He didn't come to conquer this world, at least not at the present. Uh, in a political sense, he came to conquer souls. He came to save us from the power of Satan and bring us into the kingdom of God. And so that is the kind of warfare that Paul was involved in. Verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Uh, the world is full of strongholds, and those are the ideas of men. Men have a certain idea of, of uh, who they are. You know, we're good people. It's very hard to convince people otherwise. Uh, they have... Uh, uh, certain ideas about God, like he doesn't exist, or maybe he exists, but, you know, he doesn't, uh, he's not holy, or maybe he's holy, but he's not going to judge us for our sins. 
right? Those are ideas that are strongholds in people's mind. It's very difficult to convince people that these ideas they have are not true. What Paul is saying is his weapons are mighty in being able to bring down these strongholds, right? But this was the battle he was fighting. It was to bring every thought in captivity to the obedience of Christ. That is salvation. Salvation is when we turn from our sins and turn to God. We present ourselves as, uh, as prisoners of the Lord Jesus. We say, uh, Lord Jesus, uh, you have won. We are yours. Right? I don't want to do my own things in this life. I want to be doing your will in my life. That's the end result of salvation. And that is what Paul was after. He wasn't after anybody's money. He wasn't after associating with the uh, who's who, but it was to capture souls for Christ. Second of all, it wasn't just Paul's goal, it was Paul's power, or rather God's power through Paul as another evidence he wasn't walking in the flesh. Um, I have a map next to look at. Uh, Paul wasn't just a man of wood, uh, he was a man of action. And uh, these uh, Path or lines on the map show the actions of Paul. He, uh, he was saved in Damascus, and uh, after being saved, he started preaching the gospel of Christ. And then at some point, uh, people were so um, upset with him for his work for the Lord, he had to be lowered in a basket and went to Jerusalem. And then uh, from Jerusalem, he ended up, he also was uh, preaching the gospel so boldly that he had to be evacuated from Jerusalem to uh, Tarsus. In Tarsus, uh, one of the other uh, servants of Christ brings him to Antioch, where he starts his, his missionary journeys, and he goes throughout Asia Minor, uh, Macedonia, uh, Greece, or Achaia, and uh, he preaches the gospel in a, a large part of the known world of the time, and he was planting churches. People were being saved, right? Corinth themselves, as we see, was really a product of his ministry. So there was evidence that Paul was just not just a man pursuing his fleshly uh, appetites. If he was, he would have never performed all these journeys. He would never have accomplished uh, so much for God. Now, Paul adds here a statement, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul didn't just preach the gospel, he did preach the gospel, but he has demonstrated his willingness, his ability to take actions to, to remove portions of the body of Christ that needed to be removed, meaning uh, tumors like the one found in Corinth. Uh, we have an example of it, of this kind of disciplined exercise in 1 Corinthians 5.15. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, as absent in the body but present in the spirit, I have already judged as though I were present him who 
has done this deed in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ when you are gathered together along with my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the Lord Jesus, uh, sorry, uh, Paul, is willing to use the knife when he has to. And that's important in a surgeon. I wouldn't want the surgeon, as he goes in to remove my tumor, to say, ooh, I don't want to cut too much. You know, I'll just, you know, cut a little bit and I'll take it out and I'll hope that that's enough. No, you want, uh, you want a surgeon who is willing to cut as much as is necessary to remove the tumor, right? To remove the, uh, the, the danger that's, that's posed to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is in danger. Tumors, cancer is a deadly disease and it must be removed. And Paul is willing to do that. He has demonstrated that willingness before to the Corinthians. Now he is careful. He does say this. It says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled, meaning he doesn't want to cut out any of the true believers. He wants them to move away from the false teachers. And so he's saying, when your obedience is fulfilled, I am ready. I am ready to exercise uh, this discipline and take out the false teachers. So you want a surgeon who is willing to do the cut, but that's also not cutting unnecessarily where he doesn't have to. Okay, we'll continue in uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ's. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. Another accusation labeled against Paul in this passage is that his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. It's difficult for us to ascertain how precise a description this was of Paul uh, because it's being made by people who uh, do not like Paul and Paul has been gone from Corinth for maybe five and a half years so it could be that quite a few of the believers don't really know what he looks like and what he sounds like. Uh, we do know Paul was a person uh, of small stature. The word Paul actually means small. Uh, we know that he had some limitations, and he doesn't really argue back against his physical limitation. He's not coming back and claiming that his physical presence is strong and that his speech is powerful. Uh, what he comes back with is his authority. For even if I should boast so much more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your distraction. He does have authority from the Lord. How did Paul receive that authority from the Lord Jesus? We have it 
described for us in Acts chapter 26. Paul says, while thus occupied, meaning he was occupied with trying to destroy the church, right? He, he had no love for the church of Jesus, and he was arresting believers and uh, trying to compel them to turn away from Christ. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, he went to Damascus with letters from the chief priests that allowed him to imprison Jews who were following Jesus in Damascus. At midday, O king, he's speaking here to King Agrippa, he is giving a defense of himself. At midday, O king, along the road I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me. He saw a great light. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. The Lord Jesus is here appearing to Paul, and he is speaking to Paul, and that is the bright light he saw. That is why he fell to the ground. Paul's response is, so I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. How did Paul receive this authority to be an apostle of Christ. He received it from Christ himself. Jesus came to Paul, right, in the midst of Paul's rebellion against him, and he turned Paul 180 degrees around and says, no, you're going to be an apostle for me, right? It was an evidence of the power of Christ and of the grace of Christ. He found the least deserving, and he gave them the greatest privilege. But the point is, Paul had an authority from the Lord Jesus. Did he have uh, uh, a mighty bodily appearance? He did not. Did he have a great voice? He did not. But one thing he had, and that was an authority from the Lord Jesus to go and preach the gospel. And uh, that's the one thing that these um, uh, false teachers in Corinth did not have. They did not have authority from the Lord Jesus. They did not have the message of the Lord Jesus. They did not have the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They were really teaching their own things at the church at Corinth. Uh, if you have, uh, when you go to a surgeon, let's say uh, you were found with a tumor and uh, you had an opportunity to pick which surgeon uh, to go to, what would you go by? Would you find the surgeon that was best looking, best dressed, uh, had the sweetest voice? Or will you look a little bit deeper 
at uh, their authority, right? Uh, when I had my arm operated on to extract the tumor, I was happy to see that it was a person who had a uh, special training to remove tumors out of arms, right, or in legs, right? I knew I was going to someone who had the right kind of training and the right kind of authority within our ability as humans to give authority. Uh, so in the case of Paul, he had the authority of the Lord Jesus for what he was doing. Next, in uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord's commend. The accusation here against Paul uh, seems to be that he was in some ways inferior to the false teachers by human standards. Uh, perhaps they were taller than Paul or better looking the, than Paul. They could speak better than Paul. They may have been able to pull certain credentials above Paul. I went to a certain school. I was involved in certain activities. Uh, today we put a lot of stock in, uh, in resumes. People list all the things that they did to impress other people. And uh, frankly, their resume looked better than Paul's resume. Or at least that is what they claimed. Uh, Paul's response to them is that his uh, commendation was from God. How was his commendation uh, from God? It was by the result of his ministry. Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 7, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. What fruit did Paul have to show for himself? Well, the Corinthians didn't have to look very far. They could look at one another. How did we become Christians? Oh, wait, oh yeah, I remember Paul. Paul. 
He came to us with the gospel of Christ. What happened? Oh, we believed the message. And uh, we got saved, and our lives got turned around. Right? Well, that's a fruit of Paul's ministry. Uh, the uh, false teachers may have had long resumes and impressive resumes, but they had no fruit to show. They were really laboring in another man's sphere. Paul was the one who brought this church uh, into existence. Obviously, the Lord Jesus did, but he used Paul. They did not. They kind of came after Paul, and they were trying to enjoy uh, the fruits of what Paul has accomplished, not what uh, they accomplished. Uh, perhaps the best recommendation for a surgeon is a happy customer. If, uh, if I had to choose, uh, I had uh, perhaps a brand new uh, doctor or a doctor that has been working for some time, and uh, he has a lot of people who can share a positive experience. Yes, I had a tumor, and yes, this surgeon operated on me. He removed the tumor. I've been cancer-free for years, and I still have all my limbs, and uh, I'm enjoying a good quality of life. Right? That would be the strongest possible recommendation for a surgeon. That would be the fruits of a surgeon. Similarly, the fruits of an apostle of Christ are exactly what Paul has. Churches planted across Asia Minor. And really, the Corinthians just looking at one another. How did we come to this place we are in today? It was Paul. It was Paul's ministry. What application can we make for ourselves from this passage today? I think the first thing that stands out to me is how precious the body of Christ is to him. Right? Paul has a great concern for the health of the body of Christ. He is concerned that there's now a tumor in the body of Christ. False teachers have come, and some people have followed them. And uh, he wants to come in and do what he can to fix. He's also very gentle. He's very careful. I don't want to lop off anybody that I don't absolutely have to. Right? So there's a great care and affection for the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus today, he has great concern for you. He has a great concern for his body. Uh, second, uh, uh, an application would be, am I part of the body of Christ? Am I in the body of Christ? We want to make sure that we are not part of a tumor that doesn't belong. We want to make sure that we really are part of the body of Christ. Uh, there's a... Uh, let's see. In Ephesians chapter 4... Verse 15, it says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. What is the test of the body, of being part of the body, the test is, are you connected to the head? The problem with the tumor is it's become disassociated from the person in which it lives. Right? The cells are no longer responding to the brain. They're no longer responding to the purpose of the body. They're just doing their own thing. They're multiplying like crazy. 
until they destroy the body in which they live, right? So the test for a believer is, are you connected to the head? And the head is Christ. It was a chorus we used to sing at the Yosemite uh, Bible Conference. It went like this. I won't sing it. I'll just read it. Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, I am saved by grace divine. For there the words of promise in golden letters shine. Romans 10 and 9. Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that says that if we confess the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. In order to be part of the body of Christ, I must have Jesus as my Lord. He must be the head of the body. The chorus continues, Romans 12 and 1 is a verse I will not shun, but yield to him alone who is there upon the throne. If he is not Lord of all, he is not Lord at all. Romans 12 and 1. So the Lordship of Jesus in my life is really the clear sign that I am part of the body of Christ. Third application, uh, it's good to recognize that the body of Christ depends upon me. As a healthy part of a human body, I would be contributing to the nearby organs, right? Every part of the body has a purpose. Every part of the body in some way contributes to the overall health of the body. And that's what the verse we just read said, from whom the whole body joined and knit together, but by what every joint supplies. I, I have muscles, but uh, my muscles wouldn't do me much good if I didn't have a knee for the muscles to rely on. The, the muscle system part of my body determines, uh, depends on the bone structure of my body. And neither of them will have any energy if uh, my stomach would not digest the food. And my stomach would never get food unless my mouth first chewed the food. And my mouth wouldn't get it if my hand wasn't available in order to bring the food to my mouth. So my whole body depends on my whole body, and so the body of Christ depends on the body of Christ. So I want to make sure that my uh, function, that I have a function in the body of Christ, that I am part of the body edifying of itself in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for putting us in the body of Christ. We confess, Lord, all your works are amazing, whether we look at the human body or we look and try to fathom the body of Christ. We thank you that you are the head and uh, you have glorified visions for your body. And uh, we want to be that body, Lord. We want to be uh, pure and without blemish in everything that you want us to be. We ask that you might show each and every one of us what is the role that you have for us to play in your body. Help us do it as unto you, that we might see you uh, building up uh, the body, edifying the body in love. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.